As the children are heading out, I'll invite you to find Mark chapter 14. We are returning to Mark through Easter. We have been returning to Mark every uh, winter heading into Christmas and every springtime heading into Easter for quite a while. In fact, I'm curious, does anybody have a guess as to when we started Mark? If you're part of the board meeting, I think I mentioned it, so don't, don't give it away. How long do you think we've been in Mark? What's that? Two years? Three years? So you remember when I preached through Romans from start to finish without really taking any breaks, and that took about two and a half years? We actually started in Mark. Those are good guesses. We actually started in Mark a little over five years ago. Uh, We started in December 2013. So I was 31. I had a thick head of hair. Lillian, my goodness, five years ago, Lillian, how old were you? Four years old? Well, she's not yet 10, though. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Elias would have been about seven when we started Mark. That's hard to believe it's, it's been that long. And Lord willing, if my, my schedule of preaching pans out the way I think it will, on Easter Sunday, we'll complete the book of Mark. And uh, it'll be a five-year journey for us. I appreciate you guys faithfully plodding along with us here. We return to the book in chapter 14. I hope you're, you're finding your way there. And it's appropriate as we begin to look toward Easter. My heading says the plot to kill Jesus. This is the beginning of everything that culminates on Easter Sunday, Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday. We are going to take a bit of a different approach this morning. Usually I like to have just a passage, one passage in mind, and we study that. This morning we're actually going to think about a person. We're going to think together about Judas. We're going to just slow down and take in what we can learn by looking at this person, Judas. We're all familiar with him, but let's take a fresh look at him. Let's do pray before we delve into it together and ask for God's help. Father, you have been very good to us over these past five years, and you have taught us a lot from the book of Mark, and we are grateful for that, and we're excited to be back in these pages, and I ask that you would please speak to us. Would you please enable me to serve your people well and soften our hearts to your word this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. So just a a brief word to remind us of the situation as we re-enter the book of Mark. So Jesus is in Jerusalem. We've already seen the triumphal entry when he comes in and they're all celebrating and throwing down palm branches and everything. And he's been in Jerusalem for a while, along with many, many other Jewish pilgrims who are there for the Passover feast. So many, many people, Jews, had flooded in there. And they also would have been flooded with huge amounts of Roman soldiers to make sure to keep the peace. So it was a highly charged atmosphere in Jerusalem. Jesus had been in the temple confronting the hypocrisy of the Jewish religious system and officials for quite a while. That's what we were looking at back at Christmas time. And now we've got two verses here at the beginning of chapter 14 that set the scene for us. Uh, Mark 14, 1 and 2. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is when they would come together and remember how God had brought them out of Egypt in the Exodus. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. 
For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So the chief priests and scribes, the Jewish religious leaders, had had enough of Jesus and his confrontations of them. And they were trying to figure out a way that they could arrest him and put him to death and be done with him. But they couldn't just do it outright because they were afraid. Jesus was very famous at this point and had a lot of support from the common people. They were afraid there'd be an uprising, and then the Romans would squash that. It would just be a a horrible bloodbath, and they would not come out well. So they were trying to figure out how they could do it. Enter Judas. This is where Judas comes into play. We're going to skip the next section because we've already looked at that back in 2017. And let's look at verses 10 and 11. Judas's scheme. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray, betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, who was this man, Judas? Well, one thing we know from this verse, he was one of the twelve. And Mark seems intentionally to emphasize this. We see it here in verse 10, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. We'll see it again in verse 20. It says specifically one of the twelve. And again in verse 43, when he actually comes to perpetrate the betrayal, it specifies one of the twelve. It seems important as we think about Judas that we remember he was one of the twelve disciples. Now we, growing up in Sunday school, most of us have heard that and we know that. But now as adults, let's stop for a minute and think about that. One of the twelve disciples intentionally betraying Jesus. This means like all the other disciples, at some point, Jesus called Judas to follow him. And he did, and he left everything and followed Jesus like the other 11 did. This means that he would have been present and witnessed all the same things that the other disciples witnessed. He would have seen Jesus teaching with that astounding authority. He would have seen Jesus casting out demons and healing people. He would have seen Jesus walk on water. He would have seen Jesus feed thousands of people miraculously with a tiny bit of food twice. He would have heard the parables. He would have heard Jesus' teaching. He would have heard Jesus' foretelling what would happen in the future. Right alongside the other disciples. When, you remember when uh, an entire city was looking for Jesus, wanting him to heal all their sick, and the disciples woke up and they couldn't find Jesus anywhere. And so they had to go search for him, and they found him alone praying. Judas probably was there looking for Jesus with the other d- disciples. He was there as the crowds grew, as Jesus' public ministry continued. Do you remember the story when the crowds got so large and it was pressing Jesus up against the sea, and he told his disciples to find him a boat so that he could get in the boat and get out a little bit into the water to get some space to talk to all those people? Judas might have been one of the people looking for a boat, one of the disciples that helped find that boat for him. Here's one that really blows my mind. Do you remember when Jesus sent his disciples out on their first mission and he gathered them together and he gave them some kind of spiritual authority to be able to cast out demons, heal people, and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God? 
by all indicators, Judas was there and present and among the other disciples and sent out into ministry like that. Jesus, uh, Judas would have heard Peter when Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior King. He was present to hear Jesus foretell of his death and resurrection. He was present when Jesus was confronting the religious authorities in the temple. And yet, experiencing all of that closeness with Jesus, even ministry in Jesus' name, still, in verse 10, he went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. Now that just, this giant question mark falls from the sky and lands in our laps. What in the world? How could this be? How can someone be that close to Jesus and yet still betray him? As we read on, we see that this was no surprise to Jesus. Jesus knew what was in Judas's heart, as he often knew what was in people's minds and in their hearts. Let's look at verses 17 through 21. Here we are in the Last Supper. We'll talk more about this next week as we're going to be studying this passage and having communion. But let's look at it, mainly be watching for Judas this time. It's a familiar passage, but let's be thinking specifically about Judas as we read it. We'll start at verse 17. And when it was evening, Jesus came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now let's just pause right there for a minute. Now, this is a very profound experience for these disciples to be there eating this Passover meal with Jesus in Jerusalem. They're all still a little confused about what his plan is, but they think he is the Messiah, the Savior King, and he drops that bombshell on them. Now, I want to try to connect us to that, so just imagine, next week we have communion. I'm in no way trying to compare myself to Jesus Christ here, but let's just say next week we're having communion. It's mainly just our church people here. Uh, Because it's communion, we all kind of huddle and sit close together, and it's sort of a a quiet sort of family service together. And before we pass the trays, I say, I just want to tell you something. I just found out that one of you has betrayed me in such a way that I'll end up dying because of what they've done. Now, just, just think about what that would feel like. That's such, I mean, that's nothing like this. I'm nothing like Jesus Christ, you know, and you're not my disciples like that. But what a bizarre, shocking jolting thing for them to hear. One of the twelve is going to betray me. Verse 19, their response to that, they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? So their response, sorrow. And I'm kind of fascinated by their reaction that one after another they say, is it me? Not entirely sure what to make of that. I guess they were humbly, genuinely wanting to make sure it's not me, is it? I'm not the one who's going to betray you. In another gospel, we read that Judas in particular said, is it I? And Jesus confirms it and says, you have said it is so. So he knew who it was. Let's read on in verse 20. Mark's perspective on it. Jesus said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. 
But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So Jesus knew it was going to happen, and he knew it was Judas. He didn't take Judas aside and say, don't do this. In fact, in another gospel, he says, this thing that you're about to go do, just go and do it quickly. And the other disciples thought he meant go and buy more food. They didn't realize what Jesus was referring to. So here before the Garden of Gethsemane, when we see Jesus pray, take this cup from me if you, if you would, but not my will be done, your will be done. Jesus submissively accepting that this is God's will. Somehow. So he knows it's going to happen. Now let's skip forward and witness the actual betrayal. Move ahead to verse 43. And just as best you can in your imagination, try to place yourself here. Jesus has been praying all night in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows what's about to happen. It says, And immediately, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Judas, being one of the twelve, knew where they could find Jesus. And so he led them there. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. Now Mark just doesn't elaborate on things. He just, like a journalist, just plopping the facts out there. What must have been going through Judas' mind in these moments? What would have been on his face? What do you think his facial expression would have been like? Do you think when he said, Rabbi, he was still trying to keep up a facade that he was being genuine somehow? Do you think it was sarcasm? Do you think he meant that in a cutting, hurting way? Because clearly he had a mob of people behind him. I don't know. I have no idea. But with that, Rabbi, and a kiss, Jesus is betrayed. And that's the last he's mentioned in the book of Mark. Although we do learn more about him from other Gospels. In Matthew, we learn that later, he's so stricken with grief and remorse over what he did that he returns the money and hangs himself. It's one of the few uh, mentions of suicide in the Bible is Judas. So now, that's the story. That's all Mark really gives us. The story of Judas. So we return to that giant question mark. How could Judas be that close to Jesus and yet betray him? And this is where I'd like to end. Mark doesn't give us much to go on in answer to that question. John does. John was very, very close to Jesus. He was likely the very closest disciple to Jesus. And so I want to end in the book of John. And we'll start at John chapter 12. I just want to give you three clues as to how someone like Judas can be that close to Jesus and yet turn on him and prove that he never knew him. Look at John chapter 12, beginning at verse 4. So this is during that time when the woman poured out really expensive perfume and worship to Jesus. In Mark's version, he says some of the disciples were muttering to themselves, that could have been sold and used to bless the poor. But listen to John's version. He must have... Uh, He has a little bit of a clearer take on it. 
or a more specific one. John chapter 12, verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, see there again, he seems to want us to make sure to know, this is one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So here's a little glimpse into Judas's character. And what I want to point out that we learn from this, it's not that he's greedy and not that he's a thief, although it seems that those two things are absolutely true. Judas was not repentant. I think that's a major clue as to how he could be that close to Jesus and yet betray him. He wasn't repentant. He had answered this invitation to walk alongside Jesus. He had been present and in proximity to Jesus. He had even done ministry in Jesus' name, but he had never obeyed Jesus' very first sermon when he came out publicly saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He was not repentant. Somehow, along the way, he had allowed himself to get comfortable stealing the money that people had given for Jesus' ministry and all the lying and deception that must have gone with that in order to continue doing it. He had embraced and become comfortable with. His heart was not soft about his sin. He was not repentant. Now, as we are reading this and we're thinking about our own lives, this is our very first takeaway for sure. We have to ask ourselves, am I repentant? Not do I go to church. Not did I go forward at an altar call one time. Not even did I get baptized one day. Am I a repentant person? Because this is right at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to be turning from our sins. Every, every time we see a new and deeper layer of our sin, to be confessing that to God and anyone we've sinned against and asking for God's grace and help to repent from it, to turn away from it and to do it no longer instead of justifying it, hiding it. Pretending it isn't sin. Judas was not repentant. Another clue as we read forward in the book of John over in chapter 13. This is at that same Passover meal, but this is a detail that Mark didn't include. When Jesus washes the disciples' feet. First couple verses of chapter 13 set the stage. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So there's a little detail that reappears in other passages too. Judas was not repentant and Judas was under the influence of Satan himself. Now, Satan is real. It sounds weird to talk about in our modern American mindset, but the Bible presents Satan as very real. And he is a force that works against God's people and against anybody becoming God's people. The Bible teaches that he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And he is a tempter and a liar. Judas was susceptible to Satan's manipulations. Now, Christians, we do not need to fear 
Satan. He who is in us is stronger than he who is in the world. And we have the full armor of God to stand against Satan's schemes. We have the what in Ephesians 6 calls the belt of truth. We have the breastplate of righteousness. We have the helmet of salvation. We have the, our feet shod with the gospel of peace. We have the shield of faith. We have the sword of the spirit, which is God's word. But apparently Judas didn't have any of this. And so he was susceptible to Satan's manipulations. And there's one more clue I want to point out as we close. As we read on in John's account of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, we pick up at verse 8. Peter said to Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So Peter at first was trying to be super holy and say, no, no, you will not wash my feet. I'll wash your feet. And Jesus says, if you don't let me take care of you, then you have no, no part of me. I'm here to serve you. So then Peter, who's always over the top, said, okay, well then wash my whole body. And Jesus said, no one who has bathed, let's see, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So the three clues I just wanted to point out to you to try to understand Judas, how somebody can be that close to Jesus and still betray him. One, Judas was never repentant. He allowed ongoing unrepentant sin. He embraced it. Two, he was susceptible to Satan. He did not have the spiritual resources God's people have to withstand against him. And then here, Jesus himself said he was not clean, which is a picture of salvation. So it's not that Judas was saved by genuine faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ and then lost it. He was that close to Jesus and never had it. So the big headline for me walking away from thinking about Judas this morning is, it's possible to be really close to Jesus, but miss salvation. It's possible to be really close to Jesus, but never entrust yourself to him as your savior. It's possible to be really close to Jesus, but never repent and turn from your sin, living your life on your own way, to follow him as your Lord. Now, I have brought that up many times with us as a church before, because one day we're all going to face Jesus, and it'll either be, well done, my good and faithful servant, or it'll be, depart from me, for I never knew you. Now, I think the best way to end any reflection on Judas is with self-examination. We do not want to go down the path Judas went down. Culturally, if you hear somebody called a Judas, they mean a betrayer. It could just as well mean a nominal Christian, someone who goes through the motions of Christianity without the reality. So what I'd like to do is close with just a little bit of quiet time for prayer. And that's an opportunity for us to go to the Lord and just ask him to search our hearts and reveal to us, is there anything in us that needs to change in relation to what we've just heard? Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you for your word and preserving the history of what happened with Judas. And with fear and trembling, we ask you to please search our hearts and reveal to us where we stand with Christ. 
Lord, if there is a hard heart in this room, would you please soften it? If there is ongoing unrepentant sin in this room, would you please bring conviction of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness and transformation of Jesus Christ into that situation? If there is anyone who has been susceptible to Satan's manipulations, would you please, by the victory and power of Jesus Christ, free them? If there is anyone who is not clean, not by virtue of their own moral excellence, but by virtue of having been cleansed by Jesus, would you please cleanse them? Or may it be true that every single one of us humbly, with repentant hearts, fully equipped with your armor against Satan's devices, fully cleansed and made pure and right by Jesus' mercy and grace, his death on the cross, may we genuinely trust and follow Jesus together. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.